Genesis is the book of beginnings. Exodus is the book of deliverance. Leviticus is the book of worship. If you think about that, there's an obvious progression. Genesis is where God created humanity, but it's also humanity ruined through the fall. Exodus, then, is humanity redeemed and restored. Then Leviticus is that redeemed humanity now fulfilling their purpose of worshiping God. In many ways, those three books form a, an overview of all history. The creation of humanity, the fall, the redemption, and now the worship that God deserves. We come to the book of Leviticus to learn about worship because we as a generation really need help with our worship. It's been said of our generation that we're the generation that worships our work, that works at its play and plays at its worship. And somehow that has got to change. It needs to start here needs to start here. We take real serious the earning of money in our work. And we can worship that and become workaholics. Living for what we see. And then we can work at our fitness and, and what we play at. But we can take it really seriously. And then we give God the leftovers and we end up playing at our worship. But the book of Leviticus can help us at the core of that issue. Uh, Open, please, with me to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. I'd like you to keep your Bibles open there as we look this morning. It begins, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Okay. What we learn right at the beginning of the book of Leviticus is that this book is uniquely dictated by God. Now we know that the Bible teaches of itself that the whole Bible is God-breathed and for us God's Word. But very literally, God spoke the vast majority of the book of Leviticus. And Moses has just written down exactly what God said to him. It's somewhat unique in that as a book. The other thing we learn are the particulars and how particular God is over the kind of worship that he's looking for. Tell the people... When any of you brings an offering, bring as your offering, and then the specifics begin to unfold. Now, for every book we're studying, we want to get our arms around it. So there's the learn this book section. And we provide an outline. And once again, the outline of Leviticus is very simple. The first half of the book 
are about the offerings that we bring in order to worship God. The second half of the book is the days on which we bring those offerings. So it's the what and the when of worship. Chapters 1 through 16 is the what. It's the offerings, and there's five of them. Chapters 17 through 28, those 12 chapters are the when. The days that are important in the divine cadence of God. Now, for these offerings, there are five of them. There's the burnt offering. Some of us may have that for lunch today. No, just kidding. The burnt offering, and it's the first, it's always requiring a blood sacrifice. There's something about the shedding of blood when God calls for it that is pleasing to Him. And the first blood offering is right there in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve clothed themselves, they used vegetation. But when God clothed them, He had to kill an animal in order to clothe them. The first blood sacrifice is right there in Genesis chapter 2, or chapter 3. The second blood sacrifice is in chapter 4 when Cain and Abel both offered an offering, but it was the blood sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And all of that blood sacrifice points to you-know-who. It was all leading up to Jesus. The Bible says the blood of bulls and goats has never cleansed anyone from sin. It never cleansed any of the the Hebrew people. It wasn't intended to cleanse them. All of that was a precursor pointing to the blood of the one who would be slain. That's the burnt offering requiring the blood. And it points us to Jesus. Then there's the grain or cereal offering. The first 20 times I read through the Bible, I thought, cereal offering, what are we supposed to do? Bring our frosted flakes and cinnamon toast crunch to, to God? Give him a, uh, an oatmeal offering this morning. <laughs> well, that's not too far off. A grain offering, again, notice the sequence, but the first offering required a blood sacrifice. The second was... In an agrarian culture, it was the fruit of the, the, the land, the first fruits. And it could be given in the three states that it exists. As actual grain, you could bring, bring a bag of grain and give it. Or you could crush the grain and bring flour. Or you could bake something out of the flour and bring that. It didn't matter. They'll take it all. And it wasn't ever to be eaten by the worshiper It was given to the priests for their food. That's the grain offering. Then the fellowship offering. This was kind of an I love you God offering. And over and above. And then the sin offering. The last two of the five, it's sin and then guilt. You wonder what's the difference. The sin dealt with sins against God. The guilt offering was if you had alienation, or if you had sinned against another person. So you deal with the 
vertical relationship, and then you deal with the horizontal. It's the same pattern Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. So it was the sin offering and then the guilt offering covered in that part of the Lord's Prayer. Then that we come to the second half of the book on the days to worship. The first one mentioned, Leviticus chapter 16, is the Day of Atonement. It's known as Yom Kippur. This year it happens to be on our firstborn's birthday, October 8th, is Yom Kippur this year. It's the Day of Atonement. It was the greatest day in the year for the Jewish nation. It was the only day when the high priest would go in and sacrifice in the Holy of Holies for his own sins and for the sins of the nation. That was the day that that was done. And it was a very festive and it was the highlight of their year. Then, of course, the Sabbath, which was each week, week or Shabbat. Then Pesach or the Passover which was one time a year. This year it's April 19th. And it is the weekend that Jesus died on the cross. No coincidence. When God first established the Passover, He knew that His Son would die on that time. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread because the yeast of the bread of Egypt referred to sin. Unleaven is getting rid of the sin, and they celebrated that. Then Shavat, or the Feast of Passover, or the Feast of Weeks. This year it's on June 8th. Of all things, Sherry and I and a group of others are going to be in Jerusalem on Shavat, celebrating the Jewish Feast of Pentecost right there in Israel. There's still space available if you'd like to join us. Then the Feast of Trumpets. It's known as Rosh Hashanah. And it's New Year's Day. This year, September 9th, 2011. Then the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And it was when Egypt uh, was no longer the home for Israel. They had now left and were journeying on their way to the Promised Land. And that season of Israel's history is celebrated. Then you come to Leviticus 25, and it deals with the Sabbath year, which happened once every seven years, and then the year of Jubilee, which happened once every 50 years. But what we find here is that there's a number of applications God from heaven is orchestrating worship on earth. He's setting the pattern and earth is responding to His initiative. And there is a divine cadence that God wants there to be worship on a weekly basis and on a monthly basis and on an annual basis and every seven years and on every 50 years. There's this cadence of call to worship that comes from heaven that we're responding to. God is the prompter of all that worship. It's the divine cadence. Now we've looked at the what of worship with the first half of Leviticus in the offerings, the when of worship in the second half of Leviticus dealing with the feast days. But I want to bring into focus the where. And this comes from the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. 
But here we've got a diagram of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Notice the larger rectangle is the outer courts. Any God-fearing person, whether an ethnic Jew or a proselyte, was able to bring with the proper offerings and come into that outer court. There's a diagram of what it probably looked like from the outside uh, on the screen. The fabric that surrounded the courtyard was about nine feet tall, so no one else could look in. But inside that outer court, there is a smaller space that's divided into two sections. The front space, the larger of the two, which was actually twice the size, is the holy place. And then the other smaller section, which is an exact square, is the most holy or the holy of holies. If you want to add to the diagram, and I'd encourage you to do that, God wanted the gate into the tabernacle to be facing east. So if you want to put a little compass needle, east is to the bottom of the page, west would be at the top, north would be to the right, and south would be to the left. Now that's the space, but notice the objects. In the outer court, the first object you come to is the altar. This is where the offering was brought and placed on that altar. You then come to the wash basin where hands were washed in the wash basin. Only priests were allowed into the holy place. When you walk in the holy place, to your left, there's the candlestick or the menorah, the seven-pronged candlestick. On the right side is the bread table, which always had fresh bread on it as an offering. In the far corner is the altar of incense. And then inside that holy of holies was only one object, the Ark of the Covenant. And that had three little objects inside it. And it had a huge, two or three inch thick, single piece of gold, about a foot and a half wide and about three and a half feet long, solid one piece of gold that sat on top of the ark called the mercy seat. Now, there you have it. But would you follow this? Every piece of this points to Jesus. And not only is it important for us to know this, this was designed by God back then as much for our benefit today as it was for them back there. And some of us have never even thought about it before. But let me show you. The gate at the bottom. Now here's where I want you to write in here. That gate in the bottom of the diagram, that, that bottom part of the larger rectangle, that's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the gate. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says, 
the, the robbers will try to climb in by other ways, but there's only one gate. And that was the gate he was referring to as himself. Jesus is the gate into the courts of worship. That altar. The Bible says it is not the blood of bulls and goats that cleanses us from our sin, but the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. He was slain on that altar. The wash basin. The wash basin again represents Jesus. It's the ongoing cleansing. The altar represents the fact that Jesus is our Savior. The wash basin is that He's our sanctifier. He continues to cleanse us from all sin. You go into the holy place, the candlesticks represent Jesus. He said, I am the light of the world. The bread table represents Jesus. He said, I'm the bread of life. The altar of incense represents Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us. The veil, the curtain between the outer courts, I'm sorry, between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies, get this is a tapestry six inches thick. It's the one that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. No wonder they all went, Oh my, what just happened? It would have been humanly impossible, but it happened by divine intervention that now allows us, get this, to come boldly before the mercy seat and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Jesus is the High Priest who not only goes into the Holy of Holies one time a year, but He went once and for all. And He's now in the ultimate heavenly Holy of Holies as our High Priest living to make intercession for us. And you and I are living in a day, this is one of the most awesome things happening in our world today, when God is taking ethnic Israel and He's taking all the other nations and He's waking up ethnic Israel to discover that Jesus is the fulfillment of what they were given, and He's taking all the nations and calling forth a remnant from every one of them to be those who recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of every bit of it. He's turning the hearts of the Jews to His Son. And He's turning the hearts of the non-Jews to His Son. And I want to say... If there is any shred of anti-Semitism in any of us, let's call it what it is, it is sin. It's pride, it is twisted, it is demonic, and it needs to go. It has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. We have been grafted in. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. The Bible was written by Jews. And we need to get over any anti-Semitism. All of these objects are all useful for us today. 
There's more people carrying shofars. Praise God. We need the blow of the shofar. We need the pageantry of Old Testament Israel. Because it's for us. I'll tell you who it's not for. It's not for Jews who don't get it. And Jews who never got it. We think, oh, that was for them. We don't need any of that anymore. That is not true. It wouldn't be in the Bible if we didn't need it. It's all there for our benefit. And let me just get more specific with this as we wrap it up this morning. It's in your section called Live This Book. I want you to click your pens and make sure you're filling the blanks here. And as I've thought about this, let me say, God found in me a worshiper. And over the 38 years, I'm much older than 38, but in the 38 years since I have been walking with Jesus, Everything he has taught me about worship is taught in the book of Leviticus. There's nothing I've learned about worship that isn't here. Isn't that amazing? Now, I didn't always learn it here. I didn't always, oh, that's what Leviticus, oh, okay, I need to apply that. But everything he's taught me is all here. Seven things. Number one, true worship is God-initiated. God prompts all true worship. Leviticus 1.1, God spoke to Moses. He told the people, do it this way. I'm the prompter of worship. What that means is number two, true worship is based on revelation, not intuition. Speak to the Israelites and say to them. Why? Because they would never get it on their own. They'd never get it. Self-initiated worship will never reach the throne of God. Self-initiated worship is always a scud missile that will land on a demon's lap. And was probably either pridefully generated... In which case it's self-seeking. Or it was demonic generated. In which case it will lead a host of others on the wrong course as well. The only true worship that reaches the throne is the worship that started there that God called for and told us how to do it. Now when that dawns on us, it will break us in half. Because... I can't worship without Him telling me how. The, the, the whole concept that it doesn't matter what you worship as long as you're sincere is one of the biggest lies our culture has swallowed. The opposite is true. There's a very particular type worship God wants. And as meticulous as Leviticus is, and when you read it, I mean, there's times you're going to be wondering, what in the world? I don't get it. 
If you don't get anything else, just get the fact that God's very particular about the kind of worship he's looking for. Number three, true worship is God encountering. Leviticus 1.1 says, God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. What is the tabernacle called? It's called a tent of meeting. That means here's where you come to meet God. True worship is not about throwing up some songs and kneeling down or getting worked up. It's about encountering God. It's not the form. It's the substance. It's not whether we we throw out all the percussion and the guitars and, and just use organ. It's about an encounter with God. And it was back then. Number four, true worship is costly. It's costly. And it's crushing. I'm writing this stuff and I'm thinking, well, it has, this has a nice cadence to it, but I got two words here. Can I put them down into one? And I didn't think I could. True worship, first of all, is costly. No one was permitted to come without bringing some offering, something to give. You gotta come somehow prepared. You gotta put something into it. But it's crushing. Crushing as in Psalm 51. If you wanted an offering of bulls and goats, I would bring it. But the offering acceptable to God is not bulls and goats, it's a broken and contrite heart. And that's what God was after then, it's what He's after today. There is no way we can truly worship God with a swagger, or an inflated ego, when we truly encounter God, it is crushing. We bump up against God. And we realize we're not Him. And He's infinitely greater. If you're truly going to be Involved in the worship that God's looking for. It will lead you to an encounter with Him. And it will crush you in the process. And it will crush your pride. It will crush your independence, your rebellion, your stubbornness, your isolationism. Part of the crushing of encountering God in true worship is the fact that... This is so amazing. God is not after private worship. God is after corporate worship. Everything in Leviticus is calling for the corporate. Nothing is saying, so go do this all by yourself. I'm going to train you as individuals to go do this all by yourself. None of it. And nothing in the New Testament does that either. Everything in the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament is calling for the corporate worship. What starts in the private 
always moves in true worship toward the corporate. And this is why Friday night, I hope every one of us takes seriously the opportunity we have this Friday night to be part of our night of prayer. There will be something for everyone, for every age group, for every worship style preference. It'll all be there. We're going to spend four hours. Come when you can, leave when you have to. But won't you come? When God prompted the leaders in the Old Testament to call for special seasons of worship, it was incumbent that they come. And we're calling for a special season Friday night to leave our isolationism and to die to that and to come for a corporate time. There'll be some group prayer. There'll be some small group prayer. There'll be some quiet, reflective times. There'll be some declarative times. There's times for confession. We want to include it all as we gather this Friday night. But it's part of the crushing, crushing of our own agendas. When we come corporately, God wants us to be a corporate worshiping Number five, true worship is life transforming. One of the core verses in Leviticus, many say this is the, the verse of Leviticus, is Leviticus 19.2. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In fact, the phrase, and you ought to write this down, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Because I am the Lord. It's used time and time again. In chapter 19 alone, it's used about 20 times. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 3, I am the Lord. Verse 4, I am the Lord. Verse 10, I am the Lord. Verse 16, I am the Lord. Verse 18, I am the Lord. Verse 25, I am the Lord. Verse 30, I am the Lord. 31, I am the Lord. 32, 34, 36, 37, I am the Lord. What he's saying is, I'm the Lord. Do it this way. I'm the Lord. I'm inviting you in a relationship and I'm the Lord. No, you cannot encounter the holiness of God without a change. It is life transforming. When God says, be holy for I am holy. I wish we could take a whole Sunday just on that. But suffice it to say, it is life transforming. Number six, true worship is fulfilling. If you don't mind, write this down. Ultimately, true worship is designed for the pleasure of God. But there is nothing more fulfilling to us than true worship. It's designed primarily for God's pleasure, but it's also enjoyed for our pleasure. The reason I can say it's fulfilling is not only that it's self-satisfying, but it's fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Now, I love to golf. But I wasn't made to, to, for golf. I love my family, but ultimately I was not made for my family. 
I love preaching. There's some times where, where I can sit down afterwards and say, man, thank God. I was, God made me for this. But that's subservient. Ultimately, when I am in the presence of God, involved in true worship, then I can say, this is what I was made for. This is what I'm here for. And finally, number seven, true worship is eternal. That earthly tabernacle that we looked at this morning is a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. And this is like a dress rehearsal. Every Sunday we're here practicing for when we get over there. The eternal presence of God where we will be enjoying Him forever. In that eternal place of worship. If you have never said while worshiping, this is what I was made for. I want to assure you there is more. There's more. Don't think that you've experienced God as fully as He intends you to experience Him today and tomorrow and next week. In the journey of life, God wants us to enjoy His presence and enjoy our times of worshiping His name at His initiative as we respond. Jesus said in John chapter 4, this is so powerful, the time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Don't you love that? The time is coming. In fact, oh my, it's now come. When true worshipers, there's the word, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit with their whole hearts, with gusto, with zest and zeal, and with truth, zeal with knowledge, accurately, the way God has called us to. And for such, the Father seeks. You see, He's the prompter. He right now is looking to find new worshipers. And some of us are sitting here saying, Lord, count on me. I, I want to be a, a worshiper. You found me. You don't have much to work with, but I, I want to be one of your worshipers. Let's pray together.